The Laughter Permitted Podcast is brought to you by Ally. Do it right. Hello, party people. Welcome to Laughter Permitted. I'm Julie Fowdy. I'm Lino Zowie. We sure do have a lovely episode today. And it is perfect timing for Thanksgiving because our guest is Paralympic track and field athlete Scout Bassett. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Scout over the years through the Women's Sports Foundation, and she will become the foundation's next president in 2024. In this episode, you'll also hear about Scout's life story. And for some background on that, Scout was born in China and found abandoned on the side of a street when she was about 18 months old. Her right leg was severely mangled from a chemical fire. She lived in a government-run orphanage in Nanjing, China, and then was adopted by an American couple just shy of her eighth birthday. Scout shares with us what it was like being not only a minority, but disabled in a predominantly white Michigan town, and how sports became a refuge. She would go on to attend UCLA, where she was introduced to the Paralympics, and would compete in the 2016 Paralympics. Scout is a two-time world championship bronze medalist in the 100 meters and long jump, and she is now an author, a very important author, a VIA, sharing all of her fabulous life lessons. Her book launched in September and is called Lucky Girl, and we are lucky to share Scout's journey. So get comfortable listening. It's Scout Bassett. Hey there, Dope Village. Lynn and I have been involved in women's sports our entire lives. And truly, we've never been more excited for what's to come in this women's sports space. And one big reason, Ally. Ally has made a commitment to an equal media investment in women's and men's sports. And that means more money going to women's sports and more visibility for what these incredible athletes are accomplishing. Ally is on a mission to change the game for women's sports. So here at Laughter Permitted, we're going to keep telling the stories of trailblazing women. And every time you listen in, you are part of that change. To learn more about Ally, go to ally.com. Hey there, Dope Village. As y'all know, Ally has backed Laughter Permitted since day one of our podcast as our financial ally. And honestly, Lynn, I might just tattoo Ally on my forehead. And Ally is currently on a mission to change the game for women sports. And get this, along with being sponsors of the National Women's Soccer League, Atlantic Coast Conference, United States Golf Association, and the Las Vegas Aces, Ally has committed to an equal media investment in women's and men's sports. And you, my friends, can be part of the change by watching your favorite athletes crush it on TV, by going to women's sporting events in person, by, I don't know, maybe listening to every single episode of this amazing podcast on trailblazing women. Because every time you show up for women's sports, you are helping move the game forward. You can learn more about Ally by visiting ally.com. Kick back, relax, and unwind. Let's have a good time finding the joy in life. We're smiling so bright, talking and laughing combined. Feeling alright, get comfortable listening. It's laughter permitted. Hi, Scout. Hi, Julie. How are you? Hi, darling. Thank you for doing this. Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm um, thrilled to be on with both of you. Congratulations, Madam President of the Women's Sports Foundation. Uh, thank you. So that starts in January? January 1. Wow. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm excited and uh, honored to join such an illustrious group of uh, women. It's an awesome group. It really is. All right, Scout, let's do the first thing we always do on this podcast, which is set the scene. Okay. So where are you? What you doing? What you drinking out of that coffee mug? All those good things. Yeah. I don't know why I always have the biggest mugs for some reason. <laughs> um, let's see. Where am I? I am in Toronto. Canada. And I'm currently living and training here with Athletics Canada for the next 
year through hopefully the Paralympics. And um, just got uh, home from practice and sipping on a big cup of coffee. Congrats on your new book just out in September called Lucky Girl. Yes, thank you so much. I was wondering where the title had come from. And then I read the first line of your book, which was a zinger. I'll, I'll read it. I was born in Nanjing, China, where I was given the name Ju Fuja, which means lucky girl. I have looked back many times on my life and found great irony in the meaning of that name, because if we're talking about luck, mine's been pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Yes, a bit. Um, I love that the title sort of paid homage, right, to uh my my beginnings um but it is quite ironic just given um what's happened in my life and in my story to to consider myself lucky and i certainly do yeah but it took you a while to get there it did as the book absolutely. as the book points out yes which is uh, absolutely yeah. yeah yeah i think it does for sometimes all of us right when yeah. you're going through hardships or trials mm-hmm. or struggles it's hard to see the good in the moment or sometimes for some people or for me there are chapters and seasons of your life where you're navigating these things and at the time you don't always feel very lucky or you can't see the good that can come from it but of course um, now being able to look back on it I certainly see uh, how blessed and lucky and fortunate I was at uh, so many different moments and times where the story could have gone very differently. Something I wondered is how you learned about your story That's a really good uh, question because as one will find in the book, there are certainly gaps that uh, we don't have answers for and um, certainly things that we don't know 100% the accuracy or or we don't have facts or, or evidence necessarily to prove. I'll give you an example. The the most factual thing we know is the day that I was found on the streets of Nanjing, the day that I was placed in the orphanage, and then the day that I left. And almost everything else in between are memories, lived experiences, and then anything that they have told us, um, Mm -hmm. meaning my family or my parents when I was adopted. So there's a lot um, to sort of uh, kind of unpack there. And I think Sometimes that's been a hard thing, and it is for a lot of uh, adoptees, is there's a lot about their background, about about how they were even left for adoption, the reason why that um, they don't have answers for. And I know for a lot of these people, it's something that really, uh, it's this like void, right? This struggle in their life that they um, are are have a hard time getting past, or it could be the very thing that holds them back from reaching their full potential. And for me, I guess I've never really struggled with that because I, I'm okay with, with um, what I know. And I'm also okay with what I don't know. And I know Mm. that's a hard place to get to. I have two adoptive siblings who struggle with that. You know, they want to know why they were left, Mm. um, how they got to the orphanage, why their parents didn't want them anymore. And for me, I feel very fortunate that that's not something that I have from a mental and emotional standpoint that I've really struggled with because I sort of just choose to look at the positive of the good, right? The fact of, you know, is it important? Is it necessary to know why I was left, why I wasn't wanted if I know that I was chosen? Right. Mm-hmm. And if I know that I do have a great life and I was given a, a wonderful life. So I guess it's all on how you look at it in the perspective. Mm. Pa- paint us a picture, if you would, of of what the orphanage was like. This is going to be difficult for most people to wrap their mind around. But oftentimes when we think of our childhood, we think of our happiest memories, right? Or we can think of a joyful experience or maybe a moment with a parent or a sibling um, or an experience that we had that was really positive or brought us a lot of joy. And I can honestly say that in the orphanage, that was pretty bleak and difficult. 
I, mm-hmm. I cannot name a lot of positive memories or experiences that I had there, moments that I was filled with warmth or joy. It was mostly uh, every day was mostly filled with fear, terror, survival instincts kicking in, um, and uh, a lot of manual labor and chores, very strict and regimented not a lot of freedom. And uh, I'll actually uh, paint this scene or, or image for you where outside of our room that we lived in, where we slept in, so it was about 50 kids and we shared, you know, those little um, kid-sized cots with two people. And outside the window, we could see a playground. And it had swings and it had a slide and some bars, except we were never able to go and play on the playground, but instead they hung laundry and sheets and stuff over the playground to like dry. And I just remember looking out there and thinking that's something that as a kid, we should be doing right. We should be enjoying being outside playing on the playground, but we didn't have those experiences. And in fact, in the seven years that I lived there, we never left the premises or the grounds of the orphanage um, ever. So as a kid, I'm not experiencing transportation. I'm not going to the zoo. We're not going to the park. We're not going to the grocery store. So all of that stuff, I don't even know what that is. Um, we only knew the life of, of the walls that we lived in. It was very isolated, um, very, uh, traumatic in terms of, the disciplinary actions that happened um, in our, our the you know our day to day life in terms of the physical abuse and stress that we endured and uh, that was very very obviously intense. Oh. And on top of that, you're doing all of this with one with one leg because yeah. the prosthetic that they gave mm-hmm. you was. Y- yeah. You mentioned you even had a bone that had grown out of the back of your leg, an, yeah. an extra bone, right? Yeah. So what had happened was that, according to the orphanage paper documents, I arrived at the orphanage at a year and a half old with what they documented. The literal translation was a mangled right leg. Mm. And in the the documentation of my medical history at the orphanage, nowhere in there stated that I had ever received any treatment or any surgical procedures. Uh, the only thing that they had me doing a little bit was what they considered like rehabilitation exercises. Mm-hmm. But really, I needed actual medical treatment on the leg and the burns. And so because... I had not received any treatment. You get bone spurs. Things are not growing properly. And so uh, I actually didn't receive that prosthetic that was made in the orphanage until about the last year that I lived there. So from one through six, I just scooted on my bum and two hands. And um, that's how I got around. Uh, Yeah, not, not a lot of mobility. And as a result, just my physical condition was not very good. Yeah, 22 pounds at almost eight years old when mm-hmm. your your parents who adopted you um, came. You were just shy of your eighth birthday. Yes. And so this American couple from a small town in northern Michigan adopts mm-hmm. you. You haven't been outside, really. You've mm-hmm. never seen animals. You've never watched TV. You hadn't been nope. educated. You never read a book. You only spoke nope. Chinese. You've yep. never been in a car, any of that stuff. Imagine now you're getting <laughs> yeah. put on a plane. Yep. To go to America. Yeah. yeah. What do you, do you have any memory of that yes. recollection? What, what do you remember? Yes. So one thing I'm grateful for is, uh, though this is a bit ironic, I'm grateful that I was old enough when I left the orphanage to have memories of my time there. Mm. Um, and perhaps that's also a neg- uh, the downside is that you're old enough to have memories of an experience that at times was very painful and and traumatic. But yes, I remember leaving that orphanage and just being absolutely like, I I couldn't even process anything because as you said, I'd never been in a car. I remember being on a train. I'd never been in a train, an airplane. I'd never stayed in a hotel before. Um, I'd never seen a regular bathroom. 
the bathroom we had in the orphanage was like uh, quite different. It was like a stall and a trough style. I mean, it was just like all of these things were so foreign. I'd never seen clean water. Um, and so uh, just being absolutely like heart sick because on one hand you're leaving behind a place you've only that you've ever known your whole life you're leaving behind other children that are your friends slash you count as your family and you're just being ripped out and taken to a whole new world uh, that I obviously didn't know anything about and um, that in itself was very traumatic my parents actually came 10 months before um uh, the day that I was taken out of the orphanage and that's when they first saw me, but we didn't have a lot of interaction with non-Chinese people because we didn't have access to like media or books or radio or, or television. And so the only interaction we had was just what we could remember of seeing Caucasian people. Right. And these moments are so fleeting because they come in and they go out and that's it. But I remember the day they came and got me and took me with them. I thought I was like being abducted by aliens. <laughs> I had never had that much interaction with wow. non-Chinese yeah. people. And I was like, wait, are these people of the same species? Like, yeah. are we even wow. of the same? Because I had never interacted with um, non-Asian people like that. And so that was uh, in itself quite strange. How was the experience of writing your book? Was there catharsis and looking back at your story? I have to say of all the things I sort of thought I would do or want to do in my life, writing a book wasn't necessarily like one of them and it wasn't near the top of the list, but the opportunity presented itself. And uh, there was some parts of the book that was very difficult to talk about, in particular, the experience of being in China, of... um, I talk about a girl that I had lost in the orphanage um, who really was like my caretaker and my um, sort of protector. And that was the first time I'd really like spoken and talked about that loss in my life. And um, so that was really emotional to have to go to some places that, you know, as often as I've told my story, uh, certainly there have been parts that are I have spoken less about or, yeah. or um, but yeah, it was uh, it was cathartic. It was also really great to be able to look back on these experiences. And because the book is more of a toolkit and a guidebook of how to navigate these various challenges and obstacles, like the things that I would want to say to my younger self going through that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was something that to be able to reflect and say, okay, if I could, you know, do this all over again, or if somebody else going through the same situation, what would be the advice based on what I've learned now or looking back on it, what I want to impart. And I think that was probably the coolest part of the book because mm-hmm. so often we don't get the opportunity to stop and reflect and think about what knowledge we would want to pass on from those experiences. So when you got to the United States, what was maybe the next thread, if you see, in your story? Was Mm -hmm. it being introduced to sports? Was it getting a prosthetic? I got my first proper, what we know today is more the modern prosthetic. When I was nine years old, I had had my amputation when I was eight after I got here and then was fitted for a proper prosthetic. But I would say probably sport was sort of the next transformational moment because up until then, I'd really struggled in school. I'm in a class of 12 kids. I'm the only minority, obviously the only person with a disability, and I don't speak the language. So I'm not doing too well in school. I'm not making a lot of I'm going to guess you were the only Asian in your only in in the school. Yes. Not just your class, right? Right. Exactly. And so, in fact, I can count on the number of minorities in our town with one hand and three of them lived in our family. So not a lot, (laughs) not a lot of diversity here. And so um, I just struggled in school. And the one thing I remember hearing in second grade is uh, the other kids at school were talking about youth soccer. And 
I didn't know what soccer was. Um, <laughs> my family is not particularly athletic. In fact, I would say not athletic at all. Um, <laughs> we didn't watch sports. So I didn't know anything about um, sports growing up. And obviously, if you don't have parents that are athletic or teaching, you know, prompting you to try sports, just wasn't something that, um, you know, I ever heard about. And then until I went to school. So I remember I went home and told my parents that I wanted to do soccer. And perhaps maybe the reason they didn't bring it up to me was because perhaps they knew how challenging that might be, given that mm -hmm. I had a disability. And but I wanted to do it anyways. So, you know, signed up. And uh, I just remember being so excited to do something outside of the classroom because mm -hmm. I was not good at school. I was struggling. And so something to be with other kids, but not in a classroom was exciting to me to be outside. Yeah. And um, I was so excited to be there. And then I found out kind of probably what uh, my parents had sort of thought might happen was that I did struggle from an athletic standpoint, didn't get to play very much or at all. Certainly had a little bit of a hard time with that. But somehow every season, every year, I signed up uh, for a sport. And um, I think that in itself might have been one of my first lessons of just sticking with something, being persistent about it and just showing up uh, regardless of whether or not they wanted me there. But I just loved being in a, a sport atmosphere, an athletic atmosphere, but unfortunately did not get an opportunity to play very much. I know though you got into running and you were introduced at first to a prosthetic that would help yes. you run and you and you you tell the story of resisting it. Why was that? So if you've ever seen one of these carbon fiber running legs, you know that they're very rigid looking. It's not very pretty or feminine. They've it's this, you know, carbon fiber and C-shaped and yeah. Uh, the blade is a C shape. And I think the thing that I, one of the reasons I resisted it was with my walking leg, we put this cosmetic cover over it. Oh, interesting. And yes. And so, well, it was like the elephant in the room, right? Like everybody knew I had a prosthetic, <laughs> but of course I chose to cover it up. And I'll, I laugh so often because, or I laugh now because I wanted, I had a skin tone. So you match the foam and and you paint the yeah. socket, the top part, which holds the leg, you know, a skin tone color. And then the bottom part, you fill it with foam and then you put like a nylon stocking um, that skin tone. Well, the top part and the bottom part never matched. They were never the same skin tone colors. <laughs> and then so often, like if it, they fade, right? So, you know, if you're out in the sun a lot, the skin tone would get a lot, you know, actually mm. being in the sun, the skin tone would get a lot lighter. So it's the opposite yeah. of what actually happens with your skin. <laughs> and I'd be like, why? Who did I think I was fooling? Because clearly they did not look similar at all. Right. And um, we lived in the win northern Michigan where it's winter, like six months of the year. And if you would fall or if you'd like hit, you know, a corner of a table or a chair, like a chunk of the foam would be like dented in, right? right? So you'd like go, you'd have this like cosmetic oh, cover, but then you'd have all these like dents in the leg. And it was like, <laughs> anyways. I think all of us can relate to that immense desire to fit in and fit not in. stand out in any way, shape or form. Yes. And so at least there was like some sort of a security blanket, right? With that. And I had had that cosmetic cover over the leg until I was 14 years old. And then I got an opportunity to get one of these carbon fiber running legs and I realized the shape of the leg my panic was how am I going to cover the blade to look like right. an anatomical limb oh wait yeah. and then I go to my prosthetist and he's like there's no way we can there's no cosmetic cover to go over this like it's yeah. not going to work yeah. and that was the sheer panic of like I had lived my whole life sort of I don't want to say like hiding, but kind of hiding, like had a security yeah. blanket of this cosmetic covered leg. And now realizing if I was to do running, there's there's no security. Right. I can't mm -hmm. I can't cover it up. And I think at 14, I just wasn't sure I was I, I didn't mm -hmm. like the idea of having to step out into the world and not have this cover and um, just for it to be so out there. 
Like, yeah, I'm an amputee. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to your point, like you're a minority in a very white little town. Yes. And you're trying anything to assimilate. Yes. And now you want me to put on this damn carbon thing that looks like a yeah. blade. Yes. I did love that you you did talk about, too, like you just didn't want it to make the noises it used to make. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and that was like before I started going to this process, I had a leg up until 14 where every time I got up to like uh, stand from a chair or the couch, any sitting position, um, as soon as I stepped back into the light, it would make this like farting noise. like, <laughs> And that's basically all the air coming out of the leg when you're stepping into it. And, you know... When you're in school and you tell kids, oh, it's not me, it's the, it's my like, they're like, uh huh, yeah, uh huh. <laughs> like, nobody believes <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so I was just so embarrassed. And then, yeah. of course, nobody believes me. It's just like, oh, this girl farts a lot. And then, um, <laughs> and then I'd show them and they're like, uh huh, yeah. Uh, so when I went to this prosthetist, I said, look, I only have one goal in life. And that, you know, I didn't come to him saying, oh, I want to do Paralympics. I want to be an athlete. I was like, I have one ambition, one goal. I just want to be able to get up from a chair or a sitting position without my eye like farting. And him being, <laughs> oh, you know, world renowned prosthetist was like, we need to aim a little higher if that's your only goal you have, right? Um, but I was just so mortified. And so, yeah, exactly. But that was the easiest uh, of solves for him. And luckily, you know, we've gotten away from that. <laughs> Once you once you you put that on, mm-hmm. how did that transform your outlook in in terms of running and I know in life? Well, you know, I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you you've tried something or you do something for the first time and it's sort of that like aha moment, right? As Oprah would call it or you know, something a switch goes off. And for me, that's what running was. The first time I ever had a running leg and I went out and ran, I felt free and unlimited. I think the the reason why I really fell in love with it, though, was that it was the first time that I felt like I could do something and I didn't feel like somebody was holding me down as a result mm. of it, you know, um, whereas like when I had done sports in my everyday prosthetic, I really felt limited and held back because an everyday prosthetic just isn't made to be athletic, isn't made to like do quick movements or um, certainly not for speed. And with running, I just felt like I could go as fast as I wanted. And um, anyways, it was just an incredible feeling. And at the time, I just wanted to do it for fun. I didn't think at all, oh, I want to be an athlete or or anything like that. But it was the most amazing um feeling. And uh, I just said, whatever I do in my life, I just want to be able to continue to run. And that's kind of how it started. Did being outside have a factor in that joy and love of running too? Yeah. And, and still to this day, I'll do a treadmill workout, but I hate it. And I, if, <laughs> if I, if I cannot yeah. do a treadmill workout, I won't. Um, I, I love going to the gym and I love lifting because I love getting strong, but I don't like to spend you know, workouts or, or moving indoors. And probably that has a lot to do with growing up in an orphanage where I wasn't outside much and didn't get a lot of experience of, of being in the outdoors. And so now every opportunity I have, of course, yes, I loved the feeling of being able to, you know, run on grass and hills and in the sand and just every yeah. experience was like, so illuminating for me of like, oh, this is this is what living is really supposed to be like. And I wasn't confined in that way. So I I really did love that. When it comes to competing in the Paralympics, when you first got involved, what was it like meeting other Paralympians who had a similar story to you? as far as being in a foreign country, even being in an orphanage, and then being adopted by American parents? I initially remember being, and this is something that a lot of people probably don't realize, like, sometimes when you when you have a disability, not everybody that has a disability wants to be part of a disability community. Because mm. sometimes that's the recognition of something that they are, they don't want to necessarily accept about their identity, 
right? And I know for me, being somebody who never really was around disabled people, it was kind of like, is this something I, I like, I don't know how I feel about doing this, right? Mm-hmm. And even going to the camp, the first time I went to a development camp in Chula Vista at the Olympic Training Center, I was like, it was really like the first time I had been around a lot of other people with disabilities and certainly Paralympians and other athletes. And um, that was for me kind of like a little bit of a, okay, how do I feel? Is this something I want to accept about myself? But it was kind of like, oh, but sport is such a cool way to do that. And I don't know if I would have accepted that part of my identity had it not been through sport. Hmm. Um, Because I was never interested in joining like groups or amputee therapy group or whatnot. But like, but the idea of sport being a way for that acceptance was something I was all about. And I thought it was really cool. Like, yeah, if uh, and I think that's the beauty of sport, right? There's a place yeah. of a belonging of acceptance. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you look like. If you can play, you can run, you can ball, like there's a place for you. That was something that really helped me to come to an acceptance of my disability identity and seeing mm-hmm. that like, okay, but just because you have a disability doesn't mean that you can't be cool or that you, that like yeah. you can't live a full life or, or all that. And that was awesome. Mm. Mm. I love that. It is the great equalizer, isn't it? Sport. Yeah. yeah, it really is. Now that I'm thinking about it, if you're on the track, you're not talking necessarily about your backstory or about anything like that. You're talking about times and splits yeah, you want to hit. Technique and yeah. Or like, gosh, I really have chafing today. Do you have yes. any Vaseline? <laughs> yeah. Or you're just learning from others of like, okay, well, um, in our sport, a lot of it is tech, right? It's about mm-hmm. the technology of the blades. What are what are the different systems mm-hmm. you use? What socket do you have? What kind of technology are you using? What suspension are you using to keep your leg? Like, oh, do you ever deal with sweating? Like, it's a lot of like talking about that kind of stuff, yeah. which was like really cool too. And just learning from other people of like what they're using to get better yeah. um, and how they do like even certain exercises, you know, being an above knee amputee, like there was a lot of things I had to figure out, but I learned from watching somebody else do it. Usually the backstory doesn't come until much later. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe on a trip after you've been together yes, for a while. Exactly. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Can we go real full circle for, for just a moment is when yes, I read that you, after the Paralympic Games in, I think, 2016, Mm -hmm. you went back Mm -hmm. for the first time to the orphanage in China. Well, I can say that there's nothing in your life that could ever prepare you for an experience like that. And growing up, I always knew I wanted to go back to my orphanage. I think the timing, like, it's never the perfect time, right? It's never the right time. But certainly I was anxious about it. And so when the opportunity presented itself after Rio to go back to the orphanage, it was still to this day, one of the most profound uh, experiences of my life. And Mm. in, in more ways than one, it was still the exact orphanage, still on the same address and property that I had grown up and it looked a little different because they had, you know, painted it and done some facelifts to it. But the thing that they say is our strongest memory of things is not actually what's in our memory or or what we see, but it's smell. And for mm. me, the smell of the orphanage was such a pungent smell that to this day, I still like... Um, recognize it the moment I smell it and um so the moment I walked through the doors and smelled the orphanage I I remember that place like all the memories and everything that happened there there was a caretaker that lived there that was still there um when I from when I had grown up and um that was very interesting and I remember the the first thing she said to me was it's kind of funny she's like she showed me the picture of a picture of me in the orphanage when I was there. And she said, you're so dark now. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's because when I lived here, I never went outside and saw the sun. <laughs> right. right. And, um, and so she like was like, yeah, touch, like my skin tone, right? Being so dark now. Anyways, um, 
but uh just to see the other kids is obviously like even the demographic has changed in the orphanage and I think that was something that was really surprising to me because now the orphanage exists because of strictly children with disabilities because now Mm. that China's lifted the one child policy the orphanages exist because these are you know really the most unwanted or 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 children that families feel like they cannot take care of or provide for because of the disability and probably to some level of of shame you know it's still a culture that uh doesn't see people with disabilities as having value and so um that was something i was really like kind of saddened by is that this place is existing and is full because because these kids have a disability, something that none of them could have any control over or right. or have done wrong. You know, at first, like I think growing up, I had harbored a lot of, I don't want to say anger because that's not really, it wasn't quite as strong as anger, but not positive feelings towards uh, my time there, obviously, because I had had such traumatic experiences. And I just decided that when I went back, that I wouldn't treat any of the people there, like the workers, the caretakers, or any of the children with that same feeling. I would only be there to give like as much love and and um, mm. positivity and hope. And it really transformed my outlook about my time there and how I saw my experience there because it was really when I was able to go back that I was able to say that I wouldn't trade or change that experience for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, because I saw, like you said, that full moment and that full circle when you're able mm-hmm. to see like who you've become and what you've done with your life and who you are as a person because of those experiences, you realize to have such gratitude and appreciation for what's made you who you are. And I know for me, like the perseverance and the grit and and the courage and and will that I have today is because I had to develop those skills living in that place. Mm. And um, so I'm very thankful. But the the hardest part about the experience was not while I was there, it was more the aftermath. You know, it's sort of like all these years, you've kind of kept a bandaid over these wounds that you've had. And then you go back and you sort of revisit all of those wounds and they're ripped open. Mm. And the therapy and the mental health journey that I had to go on in the years that followed was so 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 intense and I Mm. did not realize that that was something that I had needed to do for a long time Mm. that in itself was a whole nother journey (laughs) just a lot of um unpacked and undealt unresolved trauma and pain and loss that I had you know you sport sometimes has a way of you know I had had so much success um as an athlete and being in Paralympics that you think you're you're past all that Right. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, I, but I've made it like certainly I don't even need to. This is mm-hmm. never an issue. Right. And then going back to the orphanage, I realized like I had all this stuff that I hadn't resolved in my life mm-hmm. and that no amount of success could mask that kind of pain. And um, and that was something else to to navigate for sure. Yeah. Oh. Did it make you want to meet your biological parents or did it, did you come to closure on that? Uh, I think that is something that I've, um, I probably had a little bit of closure even before I, I went there, but, but got more closure afterwards. And I think anybody that experiences a transnational or transcontinental adoption realizes that the odds of finding your birth parents are quite um limited or small especially in countries or places where they don't keep documentation mm-hmm. right like here in the states it's all whether it's closed adoption or open it like it's it's all you know there's a legal process for it and um and in china there really wasn't that and so mm-hmm. you were just i was just left on the street and that's how i was found the only reason i would want to meet them is just to know their story of the kind of people that they were and, you know, have I acquired any of my traits um, and qualities because of them, but also at least maybe this is how I'm choosing to believe it. I, I, 
I think any woman in particular that has had a child and birthed a child, regardless of the condition that she might be in, you know, and that has to leave a child, lives with a tremendous amount of guilt. And having talked to many women being adopted, you know, you meet a lot of people that have had to make that decision. And Mm -hmm. for me, the reason I would want to know them and, and to meet them is I just want them to know that they're forgiven. I don't think anybody should live with that kind of shame or guilt of a, a, an possibly an impossible uh, decision that they had to make. And um, so really, it's more to relieve them of that, because if you know, I don't even know if they're alive, but if they are, uh, I, I can't imagine living with that kind of weight and burden that you carry with you every day. So that's really why I, w- I would want to know them is just to know mm. they're forgiven. Scout. Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. You are amazing, sister. (laughs) I wish I could hug you right through this damn screen. I know. I I feel the exact same way. We're giving a virtual hug. I'm going to put this book cover up here. Yes. (laughs) There we go. We got to go get it. It is now time for the Madam President to (laughs) go head to head in some competition. It's time for the Lynn game. Before we even get into the rules, Scout, the key component of the Lynn game is the noisemaker you use to chime in for your answer. So what do you have for us today? That is coming in clear. That's perfection. Jules, what have you got? Uh, I've got my Billie Jean King tennis ball. Oh, look at you. You're fancy. She won with it. So I feel like it's uh, it's good luck, Scout. Oh, look it. <laughs> oh, Swaggy, I know. You want that. So bad. Look at her. Oh, oh, oh. God. Here we Uh-oh. go. Uh-oh. You know what? It has been a while since Swaggy has been a part of the game. So I was just thinking feels, we've made it all season fitting. without a Swaggy appearance. Right, it's you time. You can come up here. You can come up here. You can help me squeeze. Her name is Swaggy? Oh my god! This could not be more fitting because every Lynn game, Scout, has a theme. Every okay. episode is a different theme. The rules are it's multiple choice questions, best of five wins. Chime in when you think you know the answer. The theme of this game, I'm not even making this up, is dogs. Oh no! <laughs> Swaggy! This for you, Swaggy. I know, you can bark in. That should be my squeaky toy. <laughs> Julie has now switched to a pink fuzzy bunny because Swaggy... Took my tennis ball. Took the tennis ball. Question one. What part of a dog is as unique as a human fingerprint? Is it A, the no... I'm sorry. Is it A, the paw... B, the nose, or C, the ears? Julie. Nose. Correct. Question two. What is a group of puppies called? Is it A, a litter, B, a pack, or C, a pride? Scout. B. Incorrect. Okay. Wait, what was B? <laughs> For a moment, I forgot too. <laughs> B's always a strong choice. Uh, the, was that B the pack? was pack. pack. Yeah. Uh, Jules. Litter. Correct. Okay, okay. okay. See, I should have okay. just gone with my instinct. <laughs> okay, Scout, you're going to get back in it with this one. Question three How many eyelids do dogs have? This blew my mind. How many eyelids do dogs have? Is it A, two, B, three, or C, five? I'm going to say five. Incorrect. Two. Scout, you're still in it. It's three. How can you have three? How can it be an odd number? What's the third one? two eyes. Per eye. What's your source again? Per eye. Okay. Question four. What is the top speed a greyhound dog can run? Is it A, 45 miles per hour, B, 50 miles per hour, or C, 60 miles per hour? I'll squeak in because I'll give you 50-50. Okay. 
What were the choices again? <laughs> it was 45, 50, or 60. Thank you, Scout. I'm going to go 60. Incorrect. Ah. It's, it's 50. Incorrect. Yeah! <laughs> you're, you're, still, you're still alive. What if we make this interesting and this question's worth three points? Sure. Yes. Okay. Okay. What part of the body does a dog sweat from? Is it oh. A, oh. the tail, B, the paws, or C, the eyes? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, wait. I thought it was. Yeah, me too. I thought it was none of the above, right? Yeah. Wait, wait. Say that again. Say that again. The what paws... part of the body does a dog sweat from? Julie. Pause. Correct. Yes. Most pressing question, Scout. Oh. What is your hidden talent? My hidden talent. Um, this is really a good question, but I'm gonna sound psycho if I answer it honestly. <laughs> we like psycho, but that's okay. Um, we love it. I am a. I'm like very, I guess this is not really a talent, but it's more like a superstition, but I'm very, very like OCD about some things. Yeah. Like, like organizing <laughs> like shoes and my closet and my pantry. Mm. Like if you saw, um, you would be like, okay, this girl's like, like labeled and color coded and measured yeah. and like, you know, yeah. all of that. Yeah. So I would say like when it comes to like, home stuff i'm very good at like you know like home at that show on netflix like i live for that stuff because or the container store because i just love everything like Mm -hmm. but it's a little it's a little cuckoo Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. your shit's tidy i try but that could be your website getyourshittidy.com Oh my I, gosh, can you imagine? Get, get your shit tidy.com. <laughs> or I'll get your shit tidy.com. Tidy.com. Yeah, like that Marie Kondo. Um, yeah. Yes, yes. Like I love. love throw love, it love. away. Throw it. If it doesn't bring you spark joy, yeah. throw yeah. it away. Final segment we do. This okay. is something <laughs> that I used to do at the dinner, dinner table with my kids. It's called high, low, cheer. I used to ask their high of the day, their low of the day, and something they would cheer for, someone they were grateful for, to show gratitude for someone. So we're going to ask you, Scout, the high-low cheer of your career. Oh, of the And the cheer is for someone who you're grateful for who's helped you along the way. And Swaggy is very into this. She keeps squeaking. I love it. Um, Okay. The high would... There's probably two, um, the the Paralympics. And then, um, honestly, the other high is just kind of starting, and that's with the launch of the the fund, the Scout Bassett Fund, oh, with yes. the Women's Sports Foundation. Yes. Where we're Can giving we Just out. give, yes. yeah, yeah. So thank you. Tell, tell everyone what that is about, because that's amazing, too. We are partnering with the Women's Sports Foundation to give out substantial financial grants to women athletes with disabilities. I'm yeah. super excited about it. There's and it's nothing called the Scout Bassett Fund. Fund. Yes. There's nothing like it out there that, you know, being involved and being inspired, I just saw there weren't a lot of organizations or people serving women athletes with disabilities. And of course, just made sense to partner with WSF to do that. So super excited about that in the future of that. Um, the low uh, of my career would be, Honestly, um, one of them was the disappointment of uh, of Tokyo, um, not making that team. We had, uh, you know, like many athlete stories, sometimes that extra year either helped you or it really hurt you. And for us, it really put us in a bad position. And a lot of things happened that year that we weren't dealing with had the trials been a year before. So um, tough timing in that what sense and uh, a lot of tears. uh you know, about not making it. And do I continue? Do I not? Here we are going forward a year into uh, Paris next year and super excited. Let's go. Yeah, let's go. Let's um, go. And then the cheer. Uh, <clears throat> there have been so many people that have really helped me in my life and, and in my journey. But I think the cheer, I'll just make it the more recent. I was, um, 
and without sounding a little cliche has just been, uh, you know, taking this role with the women's sports foundation and, um, the people there that have obviously supported me with the fund in, in, in creating and, um, partnering with me to give out those grants, but excited about what's to come with that and, uh, the presidency and, um, it's just uh, really re-energized me in a way that I didn't think um, like was possible. And uh, just because I think there's so much opportunity that can be done for, you know, the next steps of the growth for the foundation and um, in serving a lot of uh, different kinds of people. And um, I'm really, really excited and grateful for the opportunity and the board that has entrusted me with that. So um really uh, and just the way everybody's embraced me because you know I will only have been the third um president that was a Paralympian and only the first uh Asian ever so in the 50 year history so it just means a lot to me yeah and I know it means a lot to the kinger to Billie Jean King as well so yeah too and all the people that I've you know met through the foundation over the years that have followed me you include supported me I live for your introductions every year at the salute (laughs) your outfits um seeing you at the dinner like honestly Julie you are such a bright and the way you support so many uh girls and women and and the way you like love on them is just amazing and for me like somebody who has not come from us you know has come from a certain different background it means uh the world oh you are yeah. a love scout <laughs> i wish you the best i love that you've got so much going on thank the you book the fun madam president a paralympics hopefully around the corner so yes. thank you so much for having me on and i definitely want to keep in touch with you and and yeah. learn more from you you're you're stuck amazing, you're stuck with me Julie. sister Okay. Once you're in the vortex, you are not getting out. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you both. What a story. And what a a woman. I love Scout. Mm -hmm. Takeaways, Lynn. Go for it, Jules. Go for it? Okay. I am reminded once again of the power and the gift of sport. Because it was sport that helped Scout find her way, mm-hmm. find her people, her yeah. identity. Uh, and it's, it's this gift because it's freedom. It's this grounding effect. Uh, and it's the power it can have on your life. And so I'm so happy that that was really for her the moment that she said, ah, okay, I'm going to sort this out. Uh, but it is, it is the gift that keeps on giving. Yes, 100% there with you. And to think back that it was Scout's desire to play soccer and that even though soccer didn't exactly work out, it led to a sport that completely transformed her life. Major attitude of gratitude to Scout. Now, before we go into questions permitted, Jules, I want to circle back on two things from the Brianna Stewart episode, if you'll allow it. Yeah. Okay. First, I want to officially apologize to the Dope Village for our singing off the top of that episode. <laughs> Never apologize. It was horrible. Our singing was our singing was amazing. I listened to it back and I was like, I wonder if I should re-record my part because <laughs> it was <laughs> no. so bad. I listened to it and I thought, damn, that's a duet. <laughs> Alicia Keys would be so proud of. Continuing on the theme of gratitude, thank you to anyone who stuck with that episode and got past that awful, awful (laughs) singing. Also, we referenced how women's sports coverage is now around 15%. There for a long time has been the statistic of 5% out there, but we didn't cite where that came from. So I wanted to do that. It's from a study that was done by Wasserman's The Collective and Global Insights team, and they set out to get a more precise share of voice for women's sports, and they did that with ESPN Research. So very much of a GTS if you'd like to get more information. Mm -hmm. Okay, on to questions permitted. And if you would like to submit a question, a great way to do it is hit us up 
at laughterpermitted at gmail.com. And three listeners emailed with essentially the same questions. question. Sherry, Dina, and Casey Jules are all wondering what you think about Emma Hayes as the next coach of the U.S. Women's National Team. There's only one Emma Hayes. There's only one Emma Hayes. That's what I think. Uh, I'm pumped. Mm-hmm. Of course I'm pumped. She's amazing mm-hmm. for so many, so many reasons. Um, and, I mean, it is going to be a bit of a bummer that the U.S. won't get her until May. But that tells you how good she is. She's worth waiting for. <laughs> so, um, and... I'm I'm also pumped for Emma because, um, you know, she has had 11 years at Chelsea and she drives about an hour and a half to two hours each way to get into training every day. Mm-hmm. And she has a five-year-old son and Harry. And uh, I think this, beyond this being a great challenge for her and um, trying to get the United States back on top for the Olympics in a short turn, it also will give her a much needed work-life balance, which I'm Hmm. super happy for her because just being a national team coach is very different than the day-to-day of a club season. And, um, and it's, and she's something boy, she's just, she has all the elements. I mean, you don't get a coach that often brings all of them. Mm. And that's the thing about Emma is she of course brings the tactic side. She, um, of course, brings the game man- management side of, of things, but she's really good with player management, with leadership, with human connections, with being tough. I mean, she's not a pushover by any means, but also well-loved. And those combinations of those two in coaching are hard to come by. I mean, she's a coach where players talk about her being a life coach and mm-hmm. yet, you know, never going easy on them. And it's the balance everyone tries to strike, but doesn't do a great job striking that. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's. Uh, I think she's going to be tremendous for for the United States. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. I've got one more before we go. Mm-hmm. This is circling back to the close of the Aaliyah Boston episode, in which we talked about whether fake plants in the house are a no-no, and you waxed poetic about your succulent garden, as you should. So here's the email. <laughs> Hi, Lynn and Julie. I have listened to every single episode at least once and love how many different stories and topics you have covered. Personally, I'm still thinking about everything Emma Hayes said about menstrual cycles. Samesies. <laughs> <laughs> I added the samesies. I was listening to the podcast today and was so excited to hear that Julie loves plants and has a succulent garden. Two years ago, I co-founded a company called Perky Plant. We make organic fertilizer for houseplants with a mission to improve the mental health of one million people through plants. When Julie Mm. said it's important to have plants because it creates a healthier environment in your house, I literally said out loud in my car, yes. I would absolutely love to send you both some free bottles for your houseplants. We even have a special succulent fertilizer and maybe even sponsor a questions permitted question. So here's the question. Wait, before you give me the question, yeah. the perky plant is the is the gift you gave me, right? It is. So yeah. this is an email from Liz. I wrote Liz back and said, rather than have her gift us some of the mix that I would buy some women supporting women oh that was nice okay so i had a day and a half in between men's national team games Mm -hmm. that i was back (laughs) with you know soccer basketball and everything else mixed in between there but i made time to put that perky plant succulent mix in my little water um can yep and i watered all my succulents (laughs) with it so thank you So I got some for my house plants too, and I've been doing the same thing. So now it only seems natural that we give updates on how our plants are growing, basically for the foreseeable future. Okay, so here's the question. What is one thing you will be doing this winter slash holiday season to improve your mental health? Thanks for all you do to spread laughter and for giving me even more female role models to look up to best wishes liz 
Aw, thanks, Liz. The one thing I will be doing to improve my mental health is keeping Swaggy out of my succulent garden, which I will admit is one of the harder things I have to do. She loves to look for lizards in there. I'm going to work hard on that because when my garden is healthy and happy, I am healthy and happy. Well, since Liz asked for one thing I'm doing for my mental health, I'm going to give three things that I'm doing. One is staying the course with my daily rhythm. I have seven non-negotiables that I do every day, and they range from sleep to exercise to social connection. So really staying true to that. I see a therapist every week, and that will keep going during the holidays. And I've recently spent a lot of time talking about the holidays in my sessions. And then my personal holiday hack is I celebrate Christmas and I love getting into the spirit by listening to Christmas music. So I have a Spotify playlist of Christmas music that I'm very proud of that I've curated over the years that I will start listening to Mm -hmm. the day after Thanksgiving right up until midnight. Christmas Day. Right on. Liz, thank you for that question. Thank you for letting us know about your company. Julie and I are now both using your product. And Dope Village, thank you to you for taking the time in your day to hit play on this episode. We hope that it brought you some good vibes. And Lynn and I want to grow this community of ours, so please subscribe, rate, and leave a comment about the podcast, and be sure to tell a pal or two or maybe even 12 Thank you to our sponsors, Ally and Dick Sporting Goods, for their continued support, and to Kate Diaz, of course, for our theme music. And as always, kids, remember, sing it with us. Laughter permitted. If you can play, you can run, you can ball, like, there's a place for you.